Hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson, and week by week, I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 16. You may have noticed that Discord has been on a little bit of a hiatus. Now, that's not because we think that we're done figuring out musical theatre once and for all and know all the answers, but just because making a podcast is a labour-intensive process and we like doing it right, but that doesn't always mean that there are enough hours in the day. However, we were particularly excited to return to the air with an interview with Grammy and Tony award-winning composer-lyricist and singer-songwriter Duncan Sheik. Duncan's work as a recording artist includes the albums Humming, Phantom Moon, Daylight and White Limousine. His work in musical theatre includes the music and lyrics for Spring Awakening, American Psycho and for Whisper House, a show which I've been lucky to be able to direct the British premiere of. It was during the process of making Whisper House that I got to collaborate directly with Duncan and then was able to interview him for this podcast. If you haven't heard any of Duncan's work, get on iTunes and download some of it now. But here is a brief extract from Spring Awakening. Mama who bore me, mama who gave me No way to handle things, who made me so sad Mama the weeping, mama start by suggesting that perhaps one of the reasons that people dislike musical theatre is that the songs and music that they hear on stage often sound very little like the music that they listen to in the rest of their lives. But that Duncan has bucked that trend with his work. Even things like Rent, which I hadn't seen on stage but I had heard the recordings of it and I was like, well, okay, I know people love this and that's great. But this is completely musical theater music dressed up in rock clothing. It is not authentically rock on almost any level whatsoever. So I, I, my whole project was like, how can, how can we have something that is like, you know, authentically from, from the idiom of kind of rock or pop music or whatever we want to say that's, that's happening on stage and it doesn't feel like this kind of forced marriage that's kind of two things that have been like pushed together and are, and in my view, slightly uncomfortable living together. I think forced marriage is a really good way of describing bad musical theatre because music and theatre should be good for one another, but often they're not. I say to Duncan that in my observation of his work, that there is usually a sort of fence or a separation between the songs and the scenes in his musicals. 
So I ask him if one of his discoveries about putting songs and scenes together in musical theatre has for him meant putting boundaries between the two things. I think that's been generally been the, the way I've dealt with that problem thus far. <laughs> and, and, you know, in the, case of, in the case of Spring Awakening, obviously it's really deliberate and kind of Brechtian, for lack of a better word, where the scenes exist in one time frame and one aesthetic, and the songs have a very clear break where they exist in another time frame in a different aesthetic and a different kind of emotional state. Uh, and, and there's no, like, kind of smooth transition into songs. I mean, the intention was there wouldn't be. In the case of American Psycho, most of the time it was I was trying to, at least starting with the idea of just using music as diegetically as possible, you know, where it's happening in a nightclub in some way, and and maybe, you know, you're, you're kind of hearing somebody's interior monologue as they're kind of singing along with the beats that are happening in the nightclub in some way. But um, so there's some, you know, I'm, there's some eliding of those two worlds in, there, in that way. Uh, and certainly in Whisper House, like, the ghosts are musicians, like, they're singers. So that's their... That's their way of, of communicating. So that was the conceit. It's like, well, they sing because they're singers, you know. And so when they, they died when they were playing in concert, so what you know, so forever after they're just singing these songs, you know, that are kind of uh, and and so yes, I guess that the, the strategy has been to kind of have the book scenes and the music kind of exist in different realms, so to speak, in, in all of those shows. And I would say that it's been my experience in musical theatre that moving from scene into song and back again is the trickiest thing to do because it's an extreme change of mode. Speaking and singing are really different. And I think one of the things that most offends audiences at musical theatre is that sort of jerky feeling and that awkwardness of moving from a scene into a song. And what I like about what Duncan says is that in all of his shows, he's wanted to be honest about the fact that he is changing mode between scene and song rather than try and disguise it or slyly move from one into the other. He's saying, I know we're doing it and it's happening now. But I, that's not to say that I, I would love to find a way of having the two things work together in a, in a way that didn't feel uncomfortable and, and, and awful. <laughs> Um, you know, I think you know it's funny because, like, in I think you see it happen much more, frankly, in TV and film, where where uh, you know, not that people are necessarily breaking into song, but you have music happening in those mediums that's really effective and really powerful, and it doesn't feel wrong. It just kind of de- you know, again, it deepens the that moment of the of the story emotionally. It deepens the emotional intensity. And, and that's what I want to do. And I guess, you know, the real problem is like, the real problem is this thing of breaking into song, you know, a character breaking into song. And how do you solve that? And at some point I may just sort of throw up my hands and say, you know what, it's a musical. But I'm, I'm still going to, you know, kick against the pricks for as long as I can. One of the things I very much admire about Duncan is that he clearly cares about the diegetic, about why there is actually music in our world that we respond to and relate to and care about. But when it comes to musical theatre, it seems to me that Duncan isn't a diegetic apologist. Now, this is a phrase that I've made up, and it means when you make a show 
where the main reason that people can sing is that there's a naturalistic reason for it. And it's for this reason that lately we have a lot of musicals set around band rehearsals, concerts and choirs, because those are situations that would naturalistically have singing. But I think being a diegetic apologist means we lose musicals that are about deepening emotion and finding reasons why music is important to the narratives that we tell. And what I like about Duncan's work is that even though he clearly cares about why we sing and why there is music, he clearly cares about the diegetic, he's also not particularly interested in onstage naturalism. So he seems to me to be finding diegetic hooks in the world, whether that's music you'd hear in a club or music you'd listen to in your earphones. And because of that, find a hook into the emotions that we feel while listening to that music. But, he says, there's something about the singularity of purpose of when you go to experience music or when you go to experience dance on their own, in their own context, that feels more normal than when you see them mixed together. You know, when you go to a, a rock concert or a concert by a singer-songwriter or even a, a DJ set, you don't, you know, you, you like music happens and there's singing that happens and it's like, yeah, there's, it doesn't irk you at all. You know, or when you go to a dance recital, whether it's Frankfurt Ballet or some other, you know, whatever it is, it's like there's dancing that happens and you go there for that specific reason. So you expect it and it feels right and it's, you know, good, bad or otherwise, it, it, it feels correct. But in musical theater, like both singing and dancing. I mean, I guess in theatre in general, this idea that somebody's going to sing and this idea that somebody's going to dance, they're both really problematic. I see what Duncan is saying, and in many ways I agree. And for me, the difference between a musical that I enjoy and that I don't enjoy tends to be how the scene into song is handled. In Whisperhouse, which Duncan mentioned earlier, there are only two characters that do the majority of the singing, and these are ghosts, while the other four members of the cast spend the majority of their time acting and not singing. And in rehearsals, that led to a really interesting moment where one of the actors said, this is great because normally my character would burst into song to deal with this emotional moment, but instead I get to process it like I would do in an everyday situation and the singing happens elsewhere. Someone else gets to sing for me. And that's the same way as in life. If we're having an emotional moment, we might not sing about it, but we might put on some music that will help with that catharsis. And it strikes me that in Whisper House, as in Spring Awakening, as in American Psycho, perhaps the arrival of songs has something to do with the characters deciding to press play on the song, whether that's them singing it or whether that's someone singing the song for them. That change of mode is a conscious thing. Duncan says that for him, some of the smoothest moments of scene into song have occurred in film or in adaptations of stage musicals for film. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know why, why does, you know, in the sound of music, why, why is it so natural? You know, why when she's singing to the kids in the bedroom, it just, it just slips right in there and it just feels like, oh, well, she's the teacher. She's singing them a song. Or when he's singing Edelweiss or whatever it is, it's just, it's so natural and so great. And, I, and I, you know, there's some, I, it shouldn't be that difficult to pull that off, but it is bloody difficult. And I say 
that perhaps one of the reasons that singing on film might be easier or smoother for Duncan to digest is that there's already all of this other linguistic work going on to make a film work. Everything already has to be motivated from camera moves to cuts in the edit. And then audience are already dealing with the unreality of watching through the gaze of a camera. Well, yes. So, so that's why I think, you know, Dancer in the Dark is my other big musical touchstone, even though it's never been staged. It would be actually really cool if somebody would stage it, I think. But, um, but that's where, you know, again, you have this idea that she's just living in the fantasy world of her 40s, 50s musical you know, consciousness, and therefore you're, you're, you're seeing the universe through her perspective, um, Bjork's, you know, character. And, and, and so that somehow just feels right and, 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 and exciting and, and interesting and fascinating. So I say that my sense with Dancer in the Dark and Bjork is that it's extremely stylized and that I suppose a little bit like the work of Candor and Ebb in musicals like Cabaret or Chicago, there's always a sense of stylization of kind of a Brechtian frame, which means I can expect that there will be singing or music and that it won't be entirely naturalistic. My problem, I say to Duncan, is that if I see very naturalistic set or acting and then suddenly someone singing, that confuses and jolts me because it's something I just don't expect. And the difference between the naturalism and the singing feels impossible. Yeah, I, I, it's not my cup of tea either. I mean, I, you know, I think naturalism on sets, you know, it's like the Oscar Wilde quote, you know, being natural is the biggest pose of all. You know, I mean, it, I often find it to be so painful because it's just like oh, you've tried so hard to make this look like an actual real place in reality, and it looks nothing like that. You know, and and so it's just it just feels forced, and and so I, I'm much more interested in stylization. And this suddenly makes me wonder if we've got everything backwards. And in fact, there might be an honesty and a truth to singing and music on stage and as a way of telling stories. And that naturalism might be the flawed thing with regards to telling something truthful about our lives. We go to the theatre to see something that is theatrical. And music and song on stage is theatrical. Maybe it's trying to mix it with something that's too naturalistic that's a problem in making musical theatre. I say to Duncan that if an audience come in expecting something naturalistic, that then the amount of energy that's going to be required to move the plane of their expectation to something as stylized as music and singing is going to be extremely high. I suggest to Duncan that what people find frustrating in musicals is that immediate input of energy that is required to move from a scene into a song. And that what he does so brilliantly in Spring Awakening is make that a very conscious and honest thing where we all know that the song has slammed out of the scene and that that energy is provided by the storytelling. Yeah, it was sort of just like a punch as opposed to... It was just like, here, (laughs) you know, just kind of being obnoxious about it on a certain level. But the content and the form match. The scene into song moment in Spring Awakening is abrasive, but the characters are going through something emotionally abrasive, so why shouldn't the audience? 
Also, I say that from the moment we get into the theatre and see the expressionism of the design of Spring Awakening, we know that something abnormal can happen in that space. It was just a very smart thing of, of Stephen to kind of conceive it that way because, you know, you have the band tuning up on stage and, and that, you know, therefore, whether it's in a performative moment or a confessional moment or a book scene, it's just like, okay, well... She's, you know, she's backstage, you know, he's, you know. I remember seeing the original production of Spring Awakening on Broadway and noticing that one of the elements of the set design was a chalkboard with a list of song titles on it, which, as the show progressed, I came to realise was a set list. And one of the things about seeing the set list in front of you makes you realise that you're in a constructed reality. It makes you realise that the songs aren't being invented in the moment, but that they've been written. And that in some way, the actors in front of you are, of course, performing a script, are telling a preordained narrative written by writers. I say to Duncan that a really talented actor can make it feel like they're discovering their text in the moment. But it's much harder for that to be achieved when there's a band playing and they have sheet music in front of them. It's really hard for us to imagine that that character is originating that song in the moment. But again, I mean, you know, when, when I think of, of music, you know, I, I, I think of the paradigm of pop music. And I don't ever think that music is something that just is an improvisatory uh, event. I mean, I know like... Bernard Sumner from New Order, he says he improvised a bunch of those lyrics when they made those recordings, but I think it's bullshit. I mean, I think you always write the lyrics in some fashion, you know, when you write a pop song, and it's something that you internalize. So when you go to a concert, you know, whether you know the song or not, you know, some, a lot of people in the audience know the songs, and so it's something that everyone's kind of collectively singing along to on some level, you know, and, that, and so this idea that, like, that music is just spontaneously ha happening and song is sort of spontaneously happening seems slightly ridiculous to me. Not only do I agree, but I also realise suddenly that for most people, music is seen as an event and that film is often seen as an event. You know that it's pre-made and constructed and scored and calibrated for you. Whereas sometimes there's an illusion that theatre is being discovered in the moment that it's almost completely real and that the actors are finding something spontaneous and truthful and that maybe that's why music and theatre clash because the idea of the constructed event and the emergent event don't mesh together. I then get brave enough to ask Duncan a big question. I ask him why his work doesn't seem to be constrained by two rules of modern musical theatre. Firstly, that songs should push the narrative of the piece and secondly, that a character should finish a song in a different place or state of mind than they started it. All this is, is slightly by accident because the truth is that, that, that rule, those two rules that you just described, like, I literally do not understand them. Like, I, there's no, I have no... If somebody asked me to do that as, like, an assignment in, you know, in college, I, 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 I don't know that I'd actually be able to pull it off. Because it's just not how I think of song. It's not really how I think of music. I don't. I don't think of a, an individuated song as a as a emotional transformation from A to B necessarily. I mean, I think you, know, you can have a story song where you tell a story, and that's 
fine and that's fun it can be really cool but I, I don't I, I you know I, to me that the, the, the catharsis is kind of already all it's 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 already there you know it's not it's not something you know it's, it's yeah I mean you can have catharsis musically but like this idea that something is discovered over the course of the song I don't know to me it's more like you have a discovery and then you and then you you, you sing some song because of what you discovered I find this brilliant because it's so different from any way I've thought about modern musical theatre before. Duncan is saying that rather than a character changing or having a catharsis during a song, that for him, the act of singing is itself a moment of catharsis and discovery. So maybe his songs don't push the plot, but the characters choose to sing them, and that itself indicates that the character is changing and learning. Perhaps this also explains why Duncan's scene-into song moments are so clear and so calibrated, because they are the moment of change for the character in the story. Moreover, perhaps trying to achieve a change or discovery in a song is itself contrived, because as Duncan said earlier, we know that a song has been written out and constructed, and we know it isn't improvised. We know that there's a band, and we know that they have sheet music. So can a song ever truly be honest, if it acts as if it's changing a character in the moment? Maybe instead, we should know that a song is artificial, and that the character is choosing to sing, and that that choice is the moment of change and catharsis. So that is, again, it's just, it's just how, I, how I think of how music functions and how, how the way music functions for me in my own life. I mentioned to Duncan that I think in a lot of people's lives nowadays, we put our headphones in and the music that we listen to acts as a kind of filter over the world and it kind of accompanies the world that we actually live in. So rather than music always having its own narrative focus... We expect music to be a kind of accompaniment and a kind of juxtaposition to our everyday life and to our world. And that maybe the existence of headphones and the existence of iPods and iPhones and portable music devices has radically changed the way that we expect music to integrate with our world. And as such, maybe the way we expect it to integrate with our theatre. So I always go back to this moment when I was maybe 15 or 16 years old and I was you know kind of I was in boarding school up in Massachusetts but I you know I, I, I lived in South Carolina so I would often find myself uh, you know in in airports uh, you know going back and forth between school and home and vacation time and, and I'd often find myself in the Charlotte airport Charlotte North Carolina airport which in 1985 was was a place to my like kind of Massachusetts boarding school mind it was like a place of real like how can I put this in a way that's not horribly insulting it was just like where the the worst aspects of kind of American grossness found themselves all collected in the Charlotte airport okay in 1985 and and what happened I, I remember having uh, like my first portable CD player. If it was 1985, on reflection, he probably means a Walkman, but same difference. And I, and I guess it was probably Depeche Mode's Black Celebration record or, you know, that I had. And I was listening to a couple things on that record. 
you know, one of them was Stripped and one of them is a song called Fly on the Windscreen. And they're both like pretty dark songs. But something about that music and that song like weirdly made me feel like... I, I don't want to say compassion because then it makes me... It feels like I was, you know... Because I wasn't like looking down on these people but it made me feel like connected to, to all these people around me that I normally would be like get away from me you like awful middle American terrible Republican asshole people you know whatever Reaganite you know uh, military uh, you know but somehow something in the music kind of made me feel like oh these are people who have sadness and they have fear of death and mortality and they have longings of various kinds and they're not just the sum of their their awful politics or their you know or their you know over the top evangelical religious beliefs or whatever that that's they're not really just those things they're the sum of all of these things and and they're worthy of respect and I mean, love is too strong a word, but 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 some, but I did feel a kind of like, I did feel this this sense of of, of, of warmth and and connectedness and and so much less judgment by listening to this fucking Depeche Mode song. I mean, who would that doesn't make any sense on a, some level, but it's really the experience that I had walking through the airport. that music can 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 remove from you that that awful sense of judgment and that awful sense of 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 negativity and uh, and kind of combativeness and us and themness like that I think you know that's always what I think I'm trying to get at with the songs that it can have that disarming effect I don't know if that answers your question at I all love it. whatever <laughs> no, let me to think one of the things I remember saying right, I always say to people about music theatre or musicals or whatever is music is this kind of binding universal thing that every you, you're, not, you're never going to meet a person who says they don't like music and when music happens at weddings and it happens at funerals it happens when you break up with someone and it happens when you're at your most exhilarated and it happens it's just like this sure. binding and yet music is this kind of underscore to these intense narrative moments of everyone's lives and yet it seems so often that using it for narrative purpose on stage is this broken thing mm, mm, mm. and yeah I've just been trying to wonder on that because I, I, I wish it weren't the case sure I like the way I said it at the time so I decided to leave it in but I think what strikes me about the conversation that we were having is the fact that we're used to music being an underscore or an overscore to moments of our life and for being a way of colouring our perception of the world. But when it becomes the entire way of communicating information, as it does in some musicals, 
Perhaps that overburdens what songs are capable of. And perhaps by piling too much narrative information into songs, we make them inaccessible to the modern listener. I do have a lot of respect for people who are able to, to, to put amazing shows together in that way and, and tell stories in that way. I really do respect it. Even if, I don't, even if it's not my cup of tea and it's not what I like listening to, but I, I think it's amazing when you can put a song together in that fashion. I, I'm, I find it to be an, a, a, an incredible skill um, or, and craft or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, but again, it's just, it comes back to this thing of like, you know, I, I, I want music, I want it to have this, I always want it to have this deeper, deeper function. You know, it's like, it's the difference between like a Saturday Night Live kind of comedy skit song which can be really well made, you know, Justin Timberlake and Andy Samberg, and they're doing. It can be really incredibly well crafted, but it's not. It's not. It's and it's funny, you know. It can be really funny, but it's not ultimately like the song that you're incredibly psyched about putting it on your iPad, and, and, and you're incredibly moved by it. It's something you're kind of amused by. And, and to me, that's, that's, that's an important distinction. And I agree with Duncan that there can and should be a distinction between songs and music that is designed to amuse us and songs and music that is designed to change us and to accompany moments of great emotion and great thought and of dramatic importance. Because if we think of musical theatre as something only to amuse and delight and entertain, then we're cutting off a lot of the power of what music is able to achieve, and indeed what it has achieved for Duncan in his life and in his work. I like the idea that in order to make good musical theatre, we shouldn't just be making stuff that we're faintly amused by. It should be the bigger structural stuff that Duncan was thinking about at that airport and that we think about all the time. You have all these layers of things. You have uh, a really incredible lighting director. You have a, a really incredible set design. You have hopefully a, a really interesting story that you're telling. Uh, you have hopefully some some movement that is that is kinetic and, and, and exciting and adds a layer of, of of meaning to what's being sung. And then you ha- you know you have these characters. Who are, who are going through these situations and they're, let's say, responding to that in some way. You know, that, that, that's a huge amount of set of things that are, that are kind of coming together to, to, to help inform the, you know, the, 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 the moment of song um, that you don't necessarily have if you're just in your car listening to the radio. Um, so, you know, you have a, there's a, just a lot of ammunition to make the moment emotionally incredibly powerful, but it's you know, but uh, but a lot of times that ammunition is like pointed at yourself, and it makes it way worse. So I'm sort of that's the reason why it can be both really good and really bad. I think I have this sense that music on stage should be this incredible transformative thing, but that this is rarely the case because there are just so many ways for music and singing on stage as part of theatre to feel awkward but in a gig for example you never have to change mode you're there for a singular purpose I go on to ask Duncan as someone who's written music both for albums and for stage what are the main differences between the two styles of writing 
you know, there's the obvious difference that that when you're writing for theater, you're writing from the perspective of a specific character or set of characters that's not, you know, yourself, and that's to me that that's been a, a boon in the sense that it's quite boring to write about yourself after a certain, you know, after a certain period of time. You know, you can only navel gaze so much, and it becomes really tiresome even for me. So, so uh, this idea that you're writing from the perspective of a different character broadens the palette hugely, and it can be a lot of fun, and you can say a lot of things that you might not say as, you know, uh, you know I, if, I'm, if I'm writing a song from the perspective of Patrick Bateman, there's a lot of things I can get away with saying that I, that I wouldn't say as Duncan Sheik out loud. <laughs> but, but, uh, and, and so that's, that's wonderful. Um, and it's also, you know, I mean, I, I guess what I've found is that it's, it allows me to kind of go into these exercises in genre that I wouldn't necessarily do if I were just making my own kind of record. Um, and, and it kind of loos- it loosens everything up in a way where, like, I, d- I actually did three Brecht plays for CSC over the course of the past three years. And, uh, you know, Caucasian, Chalk Circle, Man's a Man, and Mother Courage. And each of those, you know, the, the first one being sort of set notionally in the Caucasus, the second one being set in India with kind of British soldiers, and the, and the third one, this production, Mother Courage, was kind of set in Africa, in fact. So it kind of gave me this opportunity to, in my, you know, in my own admittedly totally ersatz way to you know taking some of the 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 styles of those of of the music that come from those places and 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 kind of trying to make some syncretic mashup of of that of that stylistic stuff with my own my own aesthetic and 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 that was really enjoyable and and interesting and and uh, it felt um like it, 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 it kind of expanded how I thought of what it means to kind of put a song together. So I really enjoy that as a as a process. So that those are you know again those are things that I just never would have I wouldn't have really felt comfortable doing them frankly. Like it would have felt like weird tourism um, for me to do that on my own records. But but in fact I'm just really trying to help tell the story. So that gave me permission <laughs> to kind of go into those worlds a little bit more. And I think it's great for audiences that songwriters get out of their own heads and find unexpected genres of music and places and characters and opinions to write about. But I also admire the way Duncan says that he fuses those new things with his own sense of style and authorship in the same way that a novelist or a writer of prose will still have their distinct style of writing, but will find a way of mixing it with the story that they're telling or the characters that they're describing. I then asked Duncan the age-old question, when he's working, which comes first, the music or the lyrics? When I'm working with a lyricist, usually I get the lyrics first, and then I, I will, you know, depending upon what I've gotten... I'll either just leave it as it is and just write music to that lyric, or I might ask the, the lyricist for certain changes. But, but generally, I, I kind of try and leave it as it is and just, you know, set the lyric. Um, 
when I'm when I'm the lyricist, I I usually write music first, and then I kind of uh, you know I come up with whatever it is with some chord progression or some you know it's usually not really a melody. Usually the melody kind of comes later, but. So anyway, usually there's like a chord progression and then a kind of a melody that that occurs to me based on that chord progression and then the lyric kind of is grafted onto that melody. Um, and so it's the lyric is last when I'm the lyricist. I say that this reminds me of what I've read about the way pop songs are written, which is a chord progression often comes first then a top line is written on top of that, and then various lyrics are laid on top of the top line. I mentioned to Duncan that something I've been on a sort of one-man crusade about is the idea of calling musical theatre a medium rather than a genre, because if you call it a genre, then it can only really do one sort of thing, contain a certain style of music and staging. Whereas if you call it a medium, it opens it up to be including a whole load of things. Because I don't want people just to believe that a musical has to be a version of Wicked over and over again. Stephen Schwartz has been nothing but lovely to me, so I don't want to say anything... I don't want to say anything negative about Wicked. But I will say that... It's something that, you know, it, it, is, it's, it is fascinating to me why that show has captured the hearts of, of the audience that it's captured because it, it is so stylistically distinct from the music that most of those, you know, let's say teenage girls generally might be listening to. You know, it's really, it really sounds quite different you know I mean you know when you again not that again I'm not like a huge uh, uh, Britney Spears or Katy Perry aficionado or anything but uh, but you know that or Lady Gaga or whatever but that music has like a specific sound and that audience is responding it for that way you know Wicked does not Wicked is very very different experience and yet it's totally appealed to them so it's functioning in some way you know, and maybe it's more just from the from the the narrative of the songwriting that really affects that audience. But there's a, there is a genius there for sure that is really interesting to me. And Duncan's right; it is fascinating that music that we see on stage is so different from the music that people listen to in their regular lives. Why is there such a big gap between those two things? I suggest that my research about pop music and hit factories that create it are more about songs with 15-second hooks, which explain the entire story of the number, rather than a more sustained through-line or through-flow of information that lasts three to five minutes, let's say. So I suggest to Duncan that even though his music is written in a pop or rock idiom, that it is theatricalized in the fact that it has a sustained flow of information yeah well weirdly what it really is is sort of like rock music that's dressed up in musical clothing so it's really what it's it's the opposite to be honest which of course brings our conversation full circle because maybe instead of making musical theater in the clothing of other genres we should be looking deep into the genres of music and the way that they function and looking to wrap them in theatrical clothing 
looking for ways to make that type of music connect with theatre storytelling. And I understand that there are fundamental differences between music that is designed only for listening to and for music that is designed to exist on stage. But I say to Duncan that my belief about what makes music and songs belong on stage is that they have to contain information. And whether that's narrative, character or emotional information, it has to tell us more about the plot and the characters and the narrative. And that some pop and rock music is well equipped to do this, while some is not. Let's take Rihanna's Bitch Better Have My Money, for example. <laughs> you know, I mean, I love that song. I think it's like amazing. But it's, it's, it's not really communicating that much information. It's sort of just saying, like, you know, you owe me. <laughs> and you better pay me back or else. And that's really it. And it's just this kind of two and a half or three minute, you know, uh, uh, exploration of that idea. <laughs> And, and it's really cool because the chord progression is kind of interesting and the, I don't know, there's lots of things that I like about it. But I'm okay with a small amount of information if that's all it needs to be, you know. I mean, minimalism is fine. I'm fine with minimalism as long as it's good and effective. But minimalism on stage is? It's harder. Yeah. It's harder. You'd have to have something else happening. Yeah. So perhaps very low information minimalist pop music could exist on stage. But something else would need to be going on as well. There'd need to be another way of communicating the storytelling because there's just very little information in the song as it's written. Whereas I think for things to really work on stage, there has to be a sense that there is more information in the music and in the words to help communicate narrative or character or emotion. But I also think that songs in musical theatre can and should learn from pop and rock songs listened to by people who never go to the theatre. And Duncan agrees. Again, I still think that we're... If you look at Coachella in 2017 and you look at the, uh, you know, the, the nominated shows for the Tonys in 2017, there's still, uh, there's still too much of a distance there. I, I really wish that those worlds were closer, to be really honest with you. But they, but they are inching closer. <laughs> you know, and, and look, not to say that I don't want to impose my view of, of, of music on, you know, my, on musical theater. I just feel like it, w- it would be fantastic if, if, there, if there was more of a cross-pollination of those two universes. Um, and, and, and yeah, they're, they're, they're getting there in some way, but, um, but there's still a, a, a chasm. And, uh, and I, I would love to see that, you know, I would love to see that kind of collapse. And I suggest to Duncan that the fact that it is beginning to collapse is due to him because of Spring Awakening and the work he's written after. I'll take the compliment, but it's you know it's 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 David Byrne and and Lin Manuel and Sarah Bareilles and you know uh, 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 you know and then going back you know frankly you know it's Elton John I mean you know you have to and it's Andrew Lloyd Webber you know I mean he he was a rock guy you know so I there you know there is this there is this kind of tradition that's that's existed and. Uh, you know, it's just trying to kind of pull it, pull it back. 
pull, pull the worlds of pop music and musical theater music like a little bit more back together again where there's not these kind of these two camps of two different aesthetics that just never the twain shall meet they would be better off dead Lily keeps the lighthouse she's afraid of the unknown so what have I learned firstly that there is an intrinsic boundary between scenes and songs in musicals and that we should be honest about that because they are different. They require different levels of energy and engagement from audiences. And perhaps, like Duncan, if we are more conscious of the boundary between scenes and songs, and are more honest about the way songs are activated from scenes, that can help make our musicals clearer and easier to digest for audiences. Secondly, I've learned that perhaps songs in musicals don't always need to push the plot or change the circumstances of the characters. Perhaps, as Duncan says, the act of moving from a scene into song, of deciding to sing, is catharsis enough. Thirdly, perhaps it is impossible to truly make songs feel improvisational, because we know there's a band playing, we know that a song has been orchestrated, and we know that it's been rehearsed. So maybe we should instead try and make them feel more conscious and constructed, more honest. Maybe we should aim for truth rather than naturalism. Because if we construct the narrative and style of a piece of musical theatre, then we can ensure that there is a language by which we expect people to sing, we expect people to dance, and we expect them to be bound into a narrative. Whereas if we aim for naturalism on stage, then those things are always going to feel jolty and confusing. Fourthly, headphones clearly have changed the way that we see music in relation to narrative because of the fact we're used to listening to music as an accompaniment for our lives and the events that take place in it, which means we're used to music having a juxtapositional quality rather than being a direct carrier of narrative. Fifth, that writers shouldn't allow themselves to get stuck in stylistic boxes, but they shouldn't lose their authorial voice either. They should make sure they get out of their own heads and into characters' heads, and also that they explore different genres and locations to find new styles while binding them together through their own voice. Finally, I think it's the responsibility of artists making musical theatre not to allow it to get stuck in its own bubble and to make sure that the gap between music and musical theatre gets closer because by ensuring that we know what's going on in the world of contemporary music and pop music and rock music and other genres of music, then we can make our musical theatre more relevant, more cutting edge and more interesting.
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Discord. We've been away for a little while, but we are back. If you've enjoyed today's show, please do send us a message on Facebook or Twitter at Discord Theatre or leave us a review on iTunes. If today's episode left you interested in the idea of pop music existing in musical theatre, then I'd love you to take a listen to the episode I did with the title Danger High Voltage, in which I tried to figure out why certain types of music work better on stage. And if you're new to the show, please do take a look back at our archive, where you'll find episodes about comic books and musical theatre, discussions about the Worcester Group, why people hate musicals, and the boundary between plays and musical theatre. Discord is hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson, and our co-producer is Emma Clauber. A huge thank you has to go to Amanda Holland, the London producer of Whisper House, and a big thank you to the cast and creative team who made that show a reality. Thank you also to the book writer and lyricist of the show, Kyle Jarrow, and of course, to Duncan Sheik, the composer and lyricist of the show, who took the time to talk to me for today's episode. The song heard at the end of the episode was Better Off Dead, the opening number of Whisper House, as sung by Duncan Sheik and Holly Brooke. As always, our theme music is by Luke Bateman. See you next week.